22, you're listening to the GNU World Order, episode 22 of season 12. We are back with Slackware packages. We've been talking about all the software that comes on a Linux distribution by default, and I keep getting sidetracked, which is okay. That's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's kind of the point of going through all these things. But uh, we've talked about sort of everything that I thought of talking about during the pretty much the L's, I guess, is where I've been at. Now it's time for M. So the first package, and this of course is in the A series still, we're in the very first directory of the Slackware default install, which is labeled A. And, and I, should, I should probably mention, in case you're, you're new or something, whether or not you use Slackware doesn't matter, that some of these packages will be on your system if you've installed Linux, and some of them will not be. Some of them are, are something that you could find in your repository. Either way, I think it's a good thing to review sort of the, the basic and some non-basic tools that come with Linux, because it's quite famous in, in Linux that we have lots of modularity. But I think the side effect of that is that a lot of us don't ever really think about or look at all the different tools that are sometimes strung together to do really interesting things. So, I mean, a lot of people probably didn't know, for instance, that LVM was its own command, or that Lux could be done on a thumb drive rather than something that was just automatically done, either LVM and Lux, something automatically done by your system at install time, and then you never think about it again. So it's, it's, I think it's good to review these things. So don't worry if you're not using Slackware at home. Although, I worry. I worry why, why you're not using Slackware at home. We'll start with the M's, or we'll continue with the M's. And the first one that we come across here is called Make Tag. Now this is a shell script for very specific to Slackware, now that I've said don't worry if you're not using Slackware, this is all very generic. But this one is, and, and I've talked about this, the whole tagging system in Slackware, so I'm not going to I'm not going to say a whole lot about it right now, but if you want to go back and find out more about tags in Slackware, you can listen to episode, looks like it was 13, learn how to use Slackware tag files. Make tag is a, a shell script that marks different packages as either required by the system, or optional, or, or something not to install, something to skip entirely. Pretty limited in scope, so I won't go over that one. After that is the MCE log. MCE log is a machine check event logger, and it is something that you can get from kernel.org. It is the user space backend for logging machine check errors reported by hardware to the kernel. The kernel does the immediate action, like killing a process, and then MCE log does does the the, pro the processing of the error and logs it and all that other stuff. It's designed. It's pretty specific to the CPU, interestingly. So if, for instance, on my Slackware desktop, my my workstation, I run AMD. So if I do an MCE log, well, if I just do an MCE log as root, it tells me there's an error. AMD processor family. Uh, is not supported by this, or MCE log does not support this processor. Please use the EDAC MCE AMD module instead. So I could do a mod probe for exactly that, EDAC underscore MCE underscore AMD. That loads that module, and now I'm running MCE log, or, or the thing like MCE log, um, with my AMD processor. So that's kind of interesting. And you can you can actually check that more formally if you do, I think, MCE log dash, uh, or MCE log, yeah, space, and then dash dash, I'm looking at the man page, yeah, is CPU supported? So dash dash is dash CPU dash 
supported, and I think it... No, it, okay, it gives you a, uh, a friendly error. I thought it just failed silently. I'm not sure. I couldn't remember. I guess it would probably succeed silently. So anyway, it, th this is the... This is the... Um, an interface for very low-level logging, and that, of course, is in addition to all the other logs that you may or may not be used to under Linux, which would be placed into var log and well I should say because MCE logs are actually unless unless your distribution does it differently placed into var log as well so if you look at slash var slash log slash MCE log as long as you've got that active you, you will see a log file there for MCE log you can check all of this stuff by looking at the configuration file slash etsy slash mce log slash mce log dot conf and it's quite well quite well um, commented so you can kind of look through it and see see what it does what it's designed to do and then of course depending on your system you would also want to make sure that all of this stuff is actually happening uh, on startup so for slackware that's in slash etsy slash rc dot d slash rc dot mce log and you can start the the logger there and i think it's kind of important to to know that well first of all that this exists because if 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 you're having sudden shutdowns on your computer and you have no idea where to turn i this has happened to me before and and that's kind of why i guess i'm i'm mentioning this in this to this degree but but let's say that your computer shuts down on you for no good reason you have no idea what to blame and you're you're looking at logs and and they don't tell you anything useful if you've got like mce log you may get some interesting error messages about overheating uh things like that and, and like i say i did actually have that happen to me one time i was i had built a computer for for like a very specific job and I'd I'd accidentally it was only like the second computer I'd ever built I think, and I'd accidentally gotten a, I think it must have been the fan was too small or something like that you know there was some something about about the way that I had sort of built the 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 hardware stack of the CPU and and at certain under certain conditions that CPU would be stressed enough to to overheat. And the computer shuts down at that point. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't warn you. It doesn't beep. It doesn't do anything. It just turns off. No, power is down. Because if it doesn't, it will melt, you know, things. It will melt your computer, like physically melt it. So it does that. And I had no idea where to look uh, until I learned about MCE log, and that that gave me some some interesting information. I don't really exactly remember actually how much inf interesting information it gave me. Uh, it was a long time ago now. Uh, I do remember, however, that going down that path was the thing that made me realize that it was an overheating issue. I know that, for instance, Intel CPUs have a thermal monitoring feature that detects overheating of the CPU, and so when the, the when the CPU reaches a, th a threshold which is designated TM1, according to MCE Log's uh, website at mcelog.org, then the CPU gets throttled. And so if it reaches TM2, it immediately shuts down. Low-level logs are really important. That's stuff that you're not really 
interacting. I think if you come from a sysadmin perspective, you may think, or maybe not, but you may sort of be thinking, well, server log, server log, server log, and, and, and you're kind of aware of the logs that applications are creating, but those logs that your computer creates are really important when funky things start happening with your hardware. I will put a link in there in the show notes to their website because it's an interesting read to to know just what just how much how much logging can happen behind the scenes. Okay, so next up is MDADM. This is another one I'm not going to talk a whole lot about because I've actually never used this one. So I've done I've done RAID, but the servers that I've done RAID on have had a RAID card in them, and so it all happened in the firmware. It never really was something that I had to think about. You can do RAID with software, and in the past, when I need a RAID-like thing, I use LVM. However, there is a tool specifically for software RAID management called MDADM, and this does software RAID management or administration, I believe, is what the ADM probably stands for. It's written by Neil Brown from the Computer Science and Engineering Division of the University of New South Wales. RAID is a really important principle to be familiar with, especially if you're doing really important data sets that you want to have backed up at all costs at every moment. Uh, knowing how to set up and use a RAID array with, with striping and with redundancy and stuff like that, that's really, really powerful stuff. As I've said, I just it just so happens that I haven't really needed to do that. Um, the, the LVM things that I maintained were backed up separately on their own, and and the servers that that had raid arrays in them were all done in the firmware so i never had to do that myself so rather than just kind of stumbling through that command i'm just going to leave it up to you to look it up if you need to know that because it's just not something that i've ever used in certain industries software raid array is really really common like that's something that you would just be expected to know about and you should have it just in your back pocket so mdadm good to know about. Apparently there was an older package called RAID Tools. Again, I've never used that either, but uh, I guess MDADM is considered sort of an upgrade from RAID Tools because it's it's one file, it does everything on its own, and it, I guess it's a little bit simpler than RAID Tools was. Okay, next one is Minicom. It's a communications package. Minicom is a full-featured, menu-driven communication package similar to the DOS program Telex. I don't know what any of those things mean also includes SZ and RZ utilities used to upload and download files using the Z modem protocol. That it, It's Greek to me, my dear listener. I have no idea what that is talking about. If you know, you can certainly let me know, and I will pass it on in a, a later episode. Minicom, no idea what it is. So then there's makeinitrd. Makeinitrd is super important. Makeinitrd is, it says... A script to create an initial RAM disk that is loaded at the same time as the kernel. The initial RAM disk may be responsible for loading kernel modules that are needed to mount the root file system. The initRD is implemented as an init RAM FS. See the kernel documentation for more information on this. You may have never used a initRD knowingly. It might be something that your distro does behind your back. A lot of the I think a lot of the things in this A package are kind of like that. But on Slackware, if if you if you're kind of particular about how you run your system, then then you may use making it RD uh, very knowingly. You might do it very intentionally, 
And the reason is because, so Slackware ships with a couple of different kernels, and one is called the, the huge kernel, and the other is called the generic kernel, and the huge kernel is twice the size of the generic kernel. Now on modern systems, that's not really that big of a deal, and we can probably squeeze by with a huge kernel and not really notice it, but, I mean, you're always looking for little ways to tweak your system, so the generic one, knowing that it's smaller, a lot of times you kind of start out your Slackware system with the huge kernel, and then you you, you decide to switch over to the gen generic kernel just to gain that much more optimization for your system. The problem with the generic kernel, or, or rather the reason it is smaller, is because it doesn't contain as many modules as the as the huge one does. The generic kernel is is a little bit more pared down, well, half the half half of the way pared down. So you you may not have something you know, some some module in there that 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 maybe you need. So case in point is that I have I've already told you that I use the JFS file system a little bit compulsively and if if memory serves the generic kernel does not have the JFS file system in, uh, compiled into it. So if I was to if I boot my computer, if I turn it on, of course the boot the bootloader uh locates the kernel and it starts loading the it you know decompresses the kernel into memory and loads the kernel up and then the next thing it is going to want to do is to it's going to want to find the root file system and and mount that and and then do all the different initialization scripts that's the boot process so if the kernel has been loaded and it's looking for the root file system and the root file system is of a type that the kernel does not know how to read then that's a problem that will that will prevent me from booting right so if if my file system is JFS and my kernel only has support for ext2 3 and 4 compiled into its code then it will never be able to load the first drive it just won't it cannot do that luckily it's not that bad it's not it's not a super hard thing to to get around you just kind of have to know you have to know about it before you screw everything up and then reboot and re realize that your system's unbootable but the the init rd itself or, or the init ram fs itself is pretty easy to do and the and the the theory behind it is that the kernel so the bootloader finds the kernel decompresses it and then the kernel and then when when we start to we find the root file system well, in between those two steps, it, it there's this there's this initial RAM there's this initial file system in RAM that gets loaded, and it contains a bunch of more modules that the kernel can load with like mod probe that sort of thing, and use as it tries to do the next step of the boot sequence. So that it's this little it's this little thing that kind of gets inserted into the process to help the kernel along. And and the advantage there again is that the kernel can stay small and dynamically load modules that it may or may not or that it that it may need in order to get to the next step. And and that also means that this init RAM FS entity can stay dynamic. So that if you were using JFS yesterday and then switched to XFS today, then your kernel doesn't have to get recompiled. Your kernel can just stay the, as the kernel, but your init R, you can run and make init RD 
such that your init ramfs now contains a module for xfs instead of jfs, which you needed yesterday, but you don't need today. So it, it's, it keeps things modular, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. And they're really easy to make, actually. There's a bunch of defaults that, that you can override if you needed to, but generally speaking, all it really takes is mkinitrd space dash m for module list, is what that stands for. Uh, there are no, I don't think there's a long option for that. You have, it's short options only, dash m. And then uh, that should contain a list of colon delimited modules that you want built into the init rd. So for instance, if you are specifically doing this because you are using the JFS file system, then you would do init mkrd dash m JFS. That's really actually all you would need because the kernel that I'm running has ext2, 3, and 4 built in. But if, if you needed something else, let's say you, you for some reason you had both JFS and XFS were very vital to your system for, for loading your system. So you might have mkinitrd-m, JFS colon, XFS, and that way it would build in both of those modules. It knows where to put everything. By default, it puts your init uh, initrd.gz in slash boot, so it will it will place it in a, a sane location, which doesn't need anything you know that your kernel can't access. It's it's the slash boot folder. It's it's a safe place to put things, and that's it. You run it. It generates the little image, and you're done. Now, you probably also need to do something with Lilo, and that is going to be a little bit of a modification required. Let me try to, I'm scrolling through my Lilo configuration right now. And so by default, or, and I say Lilo, of course, because I use Lilo, uh, and so does Slackware by default. Now, Grub may, I don't know how to configure Grub. It's never worked for me, really, Grub. So, but it would probably be something similar to this. But it may even, for all I know, maybe it, I guess just an update to Grub, and it might auto-detect all of this stuff. But for for Lilo, you 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 need to put that you have an init rd. So init rd equals, and then the path to your init rd, which is slash boot slash init rd dot gz, unless you don't, in which case, you know, if you renamed it, if you have another init rd, the 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 name and the location of the init rd dot gz is controlled when you with the make init rd command, you can do a dash o for output or out file or whatever, and then you can place it somewhere else. But as long as you list that in your Lilo configuration and then run Lilo again, it will it will acknowledge that that's there. It'll load it into its bootloader settings, and when you boot your computer, your kernel will be loaded. Your init ram fs will be mounted as well, so that your kernel now has access to those additional modules and then they will continue along their merry way to finding your root file system, mount that, and then continue the initialization process. It's a really, really clever little system. Really, really impressive stuff. Okay, next up is the MT-ST. This controls magnetic tape drives. I have actually used magnetic tape drives, believe it or not. Not not really in computing. I mean, yes, it was interfaced with a computer, but it was actually for uh, television stuff. It was in in the television industry. There were 
some uh, disc or, or tape changing robots. They were just arms, really, that would grab a tape from a designated slot and and put it into a, a, a deck at a, at a specific time. Now, in movies, we also use them. Rendering generates a lot of data, and sometimes data has to be um, moved from being available immediately to being available more or less as a backup. So so for, for scenes that have been rendered but aren't needed right away, sometimes in, in big production houses, they move that data from 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 the main data center onto onto some other location. In, in the case that I've seen, it has been a tape drive. And so they they then they have these robotic arms that that grab a tape that someone may be requesting, like, oh, they, they need to see that scene from, from a show, uh, you know, six months ago. All right, well, go grab that magnetic tape and pop it into the thing and, and copy all the data off of the tape onto a hard drive and then send it over the network to that person's workstation. And it's it's amazing that this sort of thing happens, but it, it happens all the time. So the MT-ST and the next package called the MTX are, are specifically for that sort of thing. So magnetic tape drives and robotic mechanisms for autoloaders in tape libraries. Uh, specifically, apparently, the HP SureStore DAT40X6 and the Exabyte EZ17 and Exabyte220. It's also reported to work with other tape libraries and auto-changers by Tantaberg Overland, Brees Hill, HP, Seagate, Dell, and Quantum. I have no idea what the brand of, of, the, of the, dry, the, the robots that I've ever interfaced with were. I, I don't know. I wasn't that, that involved with them. I just had to, to make sure that... Well, sometimes I had to make sure that they were working. Other times I just was confident that they were working, because when I would request footage from some show that was six months ago, it would magically appear on my screen, so you know that the robot worked. Next in line is the incompress package, which contains the the classic Unix compression application called Compress. And this is the one that maybe you've seen some files on your system before with a capital Z at the end. That's apparently the 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 appropriate in ending for it for a compress a compress file i i've never used compress so i'm going to try it out right now i'm going to take this file which is 3.2 megabytes and i'm going to run it through compress and then i'm going to look at what the the output is so 3.2 is the the normal size wow 1011 kilobytes is the compressed size and interestingly it it does that whole sort of replace the original file with the compressed version of the file. So sometimes uh, if you compress something, you, you'll, you, you'll end up with both the compressed version and the uncompressed version. But this one, I just compressed jackenginprofiling.log, which was 3.2 megabytes, as I just said. I, I just typed in compressed jackenginprofiling.log, and then I did an ls-h again, and it had, there there was no jackenginprofiling.log. Now it's just jackenginprofiling.log.zip, capital Z, 
and it's like I say, one one thousand eleven kilobytes. So one megabyte from three point two. That's um that's not too shabby. That's really not that bad. So I don't know how to use compress really. I mean I just did, but so let's let's try to uncompress it now, so or decompress it or whatever. So compress dash delta is what dash dash help tells me it is. And we'll do a jack profiling log, and yeah, it looks like it uh, it did what I would have expected it to do, which is oh, apparently there's actually a command called uh, uncompress as well. But you can also do it with like zcat and things like that. Seems like a pretty standard kind of compression tool. I I had no idea I had that on my system. But hey, it's always great to discover new tools. That's why we're doing this. Okay, next is ntfs, and this is this will close out the n section. So that's what we'll stop the episode with. So we'll have done M and N in the A package set, and that's good. So NTFS-3G, I I remember personally a time when the NTFS-3G driver was still something that people weren't quite sure about, and nowadays it just seems to be pretty pretty much a given. It's just the NTFS-3G driver. Like, why wouldn't you have that installed? I mean, honestly, I don't usually need it installed myself, but it is one of those things where, I don't know, I like, file system support is super important to me. That is one of those things that I want all the file systems. I never want to have a drive or a disk or any any media. I don't want someone to bring me media that my computer cannot read. That just, it's it it goes against everything I believe in when I think about computers. The, the the fact that there are computers out there that are designed to to shirk, to decline, to read something off of some kind of media, it just it drives me absolutely batty because it just it it's it goes against what we're trying to do, right? I mean this this whole technology thing is supposed to make things easier and better and if we are all using different media, then the least that we could do is make all of our computers read each other's media. I mean, it, it really is. It's 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 like it's like if we had some kind of system whereby we could write with different kinds of pens and paper, and you could only read the the writing on a certain kind of paper. If I don't know if you have special glasses that could decode the way that the paper scrambles the writing or something you know it's just it just it's stupid that technology intentionally throws a wrench in this whole process especially since it just shouldn't it doesn't have to be that way but apparently much of the world sees nothing wrong with this at all and they're perfectly happy to to use file systems that um that other computers cannot read or write to and it's it's shocking i mean as as recently as i don't know 2 years ago there was a file system a universal disk format was removed from a popular computing platform uh that is not open source and it just it blows my mind you know it's it's it is such a step backwards so the fact that the NTFS 3G had to be reverse engineered is discouraging enough in order to get, you know, the NTFS readable and writable on Linux. It's just it's it's discouraging and it's disgusting to me that that's necessary. 
this is the sort of thing for for file systems especially it just it should be it should be un it should be taken for granted that if you come up with a file system you are you are going to publish the specification for that file system publicly and open and freely so that everyone can then read what your users are writing that's just you owe that to your users so ntfs 3g is really important for that reason it's one of those things that if it weren't for ntfs 3g then it would be a lot harder to interface with 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 windows boxes and windows boxes are in a lot of places in this world sadly and so this is kind of one of those really important low-level things that I almost never use, and then the one time every two years that I do need to use it, it's just, I'm so happy that it exists, so happy that it's there. So what I'm trying to get at is that NTFS 3G is probably not something that you are going to use consciously very frequently, although, I mean, you might, because maybe you work around Windows boxes, so that's yeah, I'm, I'm saying it, I guess, mostly to myself, that you're probably not going to use it consciously yourself, but then at some point it'll it'll get loaded into your kernel, your new kernel space, and it will read a drive that is NTFS drive, and you will love it for that. And it's really, a, it's a great project. These are the kinds of projects that that simultaneously make me really, really happy about open source and really, really angry that open source has to do the work to account for all of these closed source systems out there who can't be bothered to either open their own file systems or to integrate the open source file systems that open source people have produced and put out there for free anyway like if, if the least you can do if you're not going to if you're not going to give us ntfs or af what is it afp or no h Geez, I haven't used any of these things in such a long time now, I, I don't even remember. But all these closed file systems, if you're not going to give those to us, at least take what we're giving to you. You know, the EXT systems, the JFS, the XFS, all those. UFS, UDF, all of them. Take them and make them work on your system so that at least there's some way to communicate. But they don't. They do not do that. You would almost think that it was something that they were doing on purpose. Anyway, NTFS 3G, it's a great little project. It's very important, and I love that it exists. I think that's all I have for today, so thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next time. listening to the GNU World Order AUGcast. This has been Klaatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as AUGcast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at klatu at member.fsf.org. That's klatu at member.fsf, as in free software foundation.org. 
And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time.